Well, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We've been talking about spiritual gifts, and now we're going to jump into the book of Jude. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was praying about what to do next, and at the time, the book of Jude came into my mind, but God kind of diverted us for a few weeks to talk about what he was doing at that particular moment. So we are going to begin our short series on the book of Jude. So before we do that, let's give a little due diligence on the background of of Jude. As you know, it's the last book in the New Testament just before Revelation. It's the third shortest book behind 2nd and 3rd John. And it was written, best estimates, best estimates put it about 60 to 65 AD, so about 30, 35 years after Christ was crucified. So who was Jude? Well, the first sentence gives us some information. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Obviously, he refers to himself as a servant, which means he belongs to Christ. Are we servants? Ask ourselves, we belong to Christ. We, we sang, I surrender all. You know, I surrender some. <laughs> some of us surrender some of it. But God wants us to surrender it all, which means you are a servant. And then he mentions he, he is the brother of James. Now, there's a, there's a few Jameses in the New Testament. So how do we figure out which one this is? Well, other than James, the brother of Jesus... None of the others were really of any import in that time. They were mentioned, but nothing really happened with them. James, Jesus' brother, was the head of the church in Jerusalem. He was the best and most widely known person of that name. Acts 15, 12 says this, The whole assembly became quiet or became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. He's, he's the head of the church then. Acts 15, 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That was James speaking. Acts 21, 17. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. So he's the most he's well-known it would not be necessary for a Jew to reference any other James because no one knew who they were. Everybody would know who they're talking about when they say James, the leader of the church. This guy, he would, they would recognize. And since this James is Jesus' half-brother, what's that make Jude? Jesus' half-brother, right? Galatians 1.19 says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Mark 6, 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Now, I looked up the name Judas. And most commentaries say that the word Judas, or the word Jude is an English variant of the name Judas, and which is the Greek form of the word Judah. Now, they, and I, a couple commentaries said, once Judas betrayed Jesus, not many people want to go by that name. So he, this was the same guy. Most believe that this Jude is, in fact, Jesus', Jesus half-brother, James's brother. Now, why does, that, why does that matter? Does it really matter? How does that help us today? Well, I've read this a lot of times, but when I was putting this together, I figured out it encourages me in two, two different ways. First, we know that when Jesus walked the earth, None of his brothers believed in him. John 7, 
It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see your, the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And verse 5 says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, for 30 years or so, Jesus walked the earth. And for 30 years or so, none of his brothers believed in him. How many of you are parents of children who don't believe? How many of you are married to someone who doesn't believe? Or someone in your family who doesn't believe? And you have been a Christian all your life. And you think you messed up. You think you didn't do it right. Well, I'm pretty confident that Jesus didn't mess up. That Jesus probably did it right. And yet, they still didn't believe. He did everything right. Was a perfect witness. And yet, his own brothers didn't believe him. What's the Bible say? A prophet is without honor in his own home. So maybe... It's not your fault. Maybe you did everything you need to do. Maybe you did everything right. And yet, they chose not to believe. I look at Adam and Eve. Who was their father? God. And they blew it. It's encouraging that maybe it's not your fault. God gives everyone the freedom to choose. And for 33 years, his brothers chose not to believe. Which leads me to the second reason that it encourages me. His brothers did come to believe. His brothers came to know. It took 33 years to do it, but they did. Acts 1.13 says, When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Verse 14, They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. It was only after his death and resurrection that they came to believe. It tells me whenever Jesus spoke, they listened, but they didn't believe. But after he was gone, God brought those words back. God brought everything he taught back to them, and they came to believe. Maybe your family comes to know Jesus after you're gone. Your prayers now have no time limit. They're working now for their salvation. I'm sure Jesus prayed for his brothers. They didn't believe while he was around. But they believed after they saw him die and then be resurrected. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, it's not a direct promise. I've said that before. It's not a direct promise, but it's a godly principle that works. So all those of you who are praying for someone that's been hearing your witness for years and years, God's not done. God's not done yet. Your prayers have no time limit. We know God is outside of time. A thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. 
God's working whether we see it or not. And God is working whether we're here or not. Your prayers are outside of time. God can work while we're here. God can work while we're not here. Your prayers are still effective. That's the first part of verse 1, about who Jude is. The second part of verse 1 says, To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. So we know he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who are believers. He's not writing to people who don't understand. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to, to pagans. He's writing to people who are Christians. And that means everything that follows in this book is applicable to believers back then as well as now. So if you're a Christian, that means you've been called by God. God has picked you. My favorite verse, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God picks you to be his family. Our responsibility is to accept it, to choose to become a child of God. But it plainly says that God wants us and God draws us and God picks you, but you have to choose. John 1.12 says, yet to all who received him, not to everybody, but to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, those he gave the right to become children of God. You have to choose. God offers it. God wants you. God's picked you. But you have to say yes. Verse goes on and says, who are called, who are loved by God the Father. If you're a believer, it tells you that you're loved by God. How many take that for granted sometimes? Or maybe you know it here, but you don't really believe it here. This is where your earthly father comes into play a little bit. A lot of times we relate to our heavenly father as we relate to our earthly father. If your earthly father was loving and compassionate, that's how you're going to picture God. If your earthly father was mean and strict and hardcore, that might be how you picture your father. If your father never did anything that, you know, that lifted you up or encouraged you, maybe that's how you think God is. But God writes it here specifically to let you know that regardless of who your natural father was, the Bible says you are loved by God the Father. Now we all have an idea of what a perfect parent would be, right? Kind of a leave it to beaver type of guy. Father knows best. We have an idea of what a perfect father on earth would be. Imagine that God is that perfect father and then some. Regardless of how you were raised, you, have an eye, you know what you would want your father to be. That's how God is. Sometimes we think that, well, God really can't love me because I keep messing up, I keep blowing and I keep sinning. There's a, there's a truth that says sin affects fellowship, not relationship. How many of you stop loving your children when they don't listen? Some of you. You don't stop loving your child because he disobeys. You may, they may not like you too much at that point when you have to correct them, right? And maybe you need some time apart. But that doesn't affect the relationship. You still love your child. 
and the people that Jude was writing to, and probably all of us need to be reminded of that. That even in the correction, even in the rebuke, the chastisement, all those things, we know that God loves us. When you correct your children when they're little, you don't do it out of hate. You do it because you love them. If you didn't love them, you wouldn't care. But everything you do for them, whether they like it or appreciate it or understand it, you love them. The last part of verse 1 says, who loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And the phrase means carefully watched and guarded. As a parent, you watch your children like hawks when they're little, right? And you do everything you can to protect them from things that would hurt them, which means you deny them sometimes, but you do everything you can to protect them and hopefully protect them from themselves. When they're little, they want to do things that you know they can't do. And so you protect them from doing things to themselves that you know that would hurt them. God does the same for us. God gives us rules and regulations to protect us from ourselves. And we are kept safe and secure in Christ from those who would want to take that away from us. How many of you have ever been in, or feel like you're in a spiritual battle at times? That every time you do something that you want to serve God, 8,000 things come your way to distract you. Or make you angry or whatever it might be. Things that just begin to work on you from the outside. The more you start pressing in, the more things go wrong around you. That's a spiritual battle. And that's why you pray, Lord, put a hedge of protection around me and my family. We're kept by Christ. We are protected. We are carefully watched and guarded by God. If we follow his word, we're going to be protected from what the world wants to do because the word tells us how to live, what to do. And if we do these, we'll most likely be protected from the things in the world. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we all know this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. John 16, 12, I have much more to say to you more than, one, more than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we never obviously achieve perfection in this life. We sin. We're always going to sin. But if we're led by the Spirit, that means you're convicted of sin. You know when you do it. And you know God's word. What's the thing you should do? Instantly ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our everyday sins, our everyday mistakes, the way we live our life, none of that takes you away from God. You're kept secure. God's word is, is meant as a hedge of protection around you. If you read it and you do it, most likely you won't be affected by the sins that are around you. John 10, 28 says, I gave them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The enemy can't take you away. The enemy can offer you things. The world can offer you things. But no one can physically take you away from Christ. Once you're a Christian, nothing from the outside is going to change that. 
It requires us to continue to pursue righteousness with Christ. If we do that, if we do his word, the best of our ability, you don't have to worry about where you're going to wind up. Jude verse 2 says, Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Because we are God's children, we've been protected and loved by God. Jude wants them and us to know and receive God's blessings. Mercy is his compassion, which means he does not give us what we do deserve. Instead, Jesus took our deserved punishment, right? We deserved it, but we didn't get it. That's mercy. Psalm 103, verse 10, another, this is a good one. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. How many are thankful that God's not up there waiting for you to sin? And the minute you sin, man, the hammer comes down. The Bible says he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Christ already took all that punishment for us. So every time we think we should get the hammer, Christ took it. Peace is his quiet gift of confidence. We are kept by the Lord himself. It's like your children when they sleep, they want to sleep with you. They want to sleep close to you because they know that you're there. And if you're not there, they don't have peace. They're kind of stressed. And if they're little and they try to spend the night at your grandparents' house and they get up 3 o'clock in the morning, where's mom? Where's dad? They don't have a peace. Now ours do, but they still get up. We used to go on vacation with my, my parents and my brother and I. This is back before seat belts and all that stuff, and we would lay on the floor on the back seat of the car. It's like a big old, you know, big 98, and we'd sit on the floor. It was big enough. And we would sleep the entire trip to wherever we were going. Didn't have a worry in the world. And we, didn't have, we had no idea of what was happening on the road, how much traffic or whatever was going on. All we know is we got there safe. We were at peace because we knew my dad was driving. God gives you peace because we know that God's driving. No matter what's going on around you, God can give you that peace. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And the last word he uses is love in his generosity and granting favors and meeting our needs. But God demonstrates, Romans 5, 8, God, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will we not also along with him graciously, or he give us graciously all things? Jude wants his Christian believers, his Christian family, to experience mercy, peace, and love not only a little bit, but the Bible says in abundance. We can have these things if we let the peace of Christ, the Bible says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Once you do that, once you let it rule, then you have all of that. Verse 3, he continues, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to all the saints. 
Now at the beginning I said about three weeks ago we were going to talk about Jude. But then something happened in the church. We had the gifts of the Spirit in operation. So we, we deviated from that and did the gifts of the Spirit. Well, that's exactly what Jude was facing here. He was going to write about this excitement and the salvation and all the, the good things. And he says, wait a minute. I can't do that right now. I need to address this because this is important. He already had an idea in his head what to write about. He wanted to encourage them about their faith, how they share things together. But either the Holy Spirit or the circumstances or probably both at the time prompted him to change his, his sermon topic. Every preacher wants to preach on things that are encouraging. The love of God, the peace of Christ, answered prayer, all those things that are encouraging. But there's going to be times when you have to warn and challenge the church. You hope every doctor visit is full of encouraging news. But we know sometimes there's going to be things that we don't want to hear, but we have to hear in order to protect us and to warn us. Warren Wisby says this, I like this, the Christian life is, not a, is a battleground, not a playground. Jude had to alert the church to stand up for truth because truth in his day and throughout history has always been under assault. How, how often have you heard the phrase, oh, truth is relative? Or what's true for you eh, might not be true for me. Truth denied is still truth. Whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not, truth is still truth. If I tell you that speaker is black, it doesn't matter what you think about that speaker. Speaker's black. You can think all day long that it's red or green or gray, and you may think that's truth for you. But the truth is still that it's black. And God's word has to be treated the same way. And since God's word is truth, it will always be under assault. And we always need to be able to defend it. Verse 4, Jude goes on. He says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Notice it's not an attack from the world. It's an attack from within. It's easy to defend against the world. Because we know the world. The Bible says the world hates me. It's going to hate you too. So we know the world is going to come at us. But a lot of times we don't recognize when the battle is coming from within. The condemnation that he's writing about here is a reference to God's stated judgment on those who don't believe. But as hard as I tried to find one, I couldn't find one that specifically talked about that condemnation. Only that we know that those who teach false things will be condemned like everybody else. So he jumps right into the problem. He says, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago has secretly slipped in among you. These are godless men who changed the grace of God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now the word secretly means undercover. They, they come in pretending to believe, but with the intention of deceiving you. The people, these people were not believers who differed on minor points of theology. How many know that there's a lot of good churches, we differ on different things? As long as they believe the essentials, salvation by grace, virgin birth, all that stuff, they, they believe the essentials, we're family. But when they deviate from that and they deny this, the truths of God's word, 
then we have to part company with them. So these people were coming in. They weren't, they weren't believers who differed on things. These were unbelievers who specifically came in to sabotage this particular church. And it happens today as well. He was telling them that there are already people in your church who deny the word of God. And they're trying to infiltrate all the church with all these wrong doctrines. And they appear to be godly. They appear to be one of you. But in fact, they're not. And Timothy talks about them. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, wrath, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of money. And here it is, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They look nice, they behave well, they appear to be Christians, but they're not. So what were they trying to do? Verse 4 tells us they were changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. And don't we see that today? God is love, and he just loves you however you are. Whatever you want to do is okay with God. He doesn't, doesn't, he loves you, it doesn't matter what you do. The truth is, it's partially true. God loves you, but he doesn't always love what you do. And the whole God loves you allows them to say that everything is okay, no matter what you do, all roads lead to God. God is love, period. But they forget about justice because love and justice are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. If, if you go to a courtroom and the, and the judge is all lovey-dovey and you're brought in as a, as a murderer, he says, hey, man, I love you. You're free to go. Where's the justice for the family who he killed? There's no justice. So the love really isn't love for the family. It's just sappy love for that guy on the bench. God is a God of love. He loves you. But God is also a God of justice. There's going to come a time where justice is served. And Jude's telling them these guys are trying to do the same thing. God's love and grace is so good that he doesn't care how you live, what you believe, or what you do. God's love and grace will accept everybody and anybody on their terms. But we know that's not true. Just because God is gracious and forgives our sins when we truly confess and repent of them, it doesn't mean that God allows every sin with no judgment. There's going to come a time for judgment. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say, say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul says, by no means. Now I mentioned last week progressive Christianity. How many have heard that term? It's relatively new. Name sounds okay, right? Progressive Christianity, we're good. But it's anything from anything from biblical Christianity. I went to the, their, this is their website. I went to their website to pick up some points. They have, a, they have a website, Progressive Christianity website. Here are a couple of points from their website. Point one, we affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide one, but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life. And we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom for our spiritual journey. The second one, we see community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians, 
questioning skeptics, believers, agnostics, men and women, those of all sexual orientation, all gender identities, those of all classes and abilities. And this is based on the premise that God loves everybody how you are, don't have to change. God loves everybody the same way. Again, partially true. He loves everyone, but he does not love what everyone does. Judah's saying, you guys need to wake up. There's people in your church already doing this. And what's the outcome of this particular teaching? Verse four continues to say, and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. When people teach this type of stuff, it's, it, they're not teaching the Jesus of the Bible. It's a made-up Jesus. Something that they thought up in their head or something that they thought would be pleasing to everybody else. We did a series a while ago. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was talking, talking about witnessing to people. And one of the, the things that we Christians sometimes do is when we talk to someone about Christ, we'll say, you know, Come to Christ and, and all your problems will be solved. Or come to Christ and he'll give you, you know, he'll bless you, he'll heal you, whatever it might be. And when we do that, we offer that type of conditional salvation. What happens when that does not happen? Man, you come to Christ and I, you know, God says he's going to heal you. Or God says he's going to do this for you. He's going to save your job and whatever it's going to be. And you come to Christ and it doesn't happen. Well, none of this stuff is true. It's not, it, none of this Christianity is true. If they said, if I come to Christ, he's going to do this for me, and he doesn't do it, then all of it must be false. And the point was, when we come to people, we have to confront them with who do they think God is. And you ask anybody on the street, what do you think, who do you think God is? What do you think God's like? And they'll tell you what they think God's like. And they'll invariably make up a God that agrees with their particular lifestyle or their thinking. And the, the author of this was saying, you are basically being an idolater because you're just making up a God that you like, that accepts you, not the God of the Bible. And what happens when these people come in and start teaching this stuff, they're, they're making up a God that they like, that appeals to them, that their God goes by their rules, that everything they believe, well, my God has to believe it. And the Bible says that's not true. There's, there's a... There's a, God is who he is. And we can't change who God is. And when people come in and, and start teaching that kind of stuff, it sounds great. It, it draws people away. But unless you understand that they're drawing you away to a false God, it's not the Jesus of the Bible, it's not the God of the Bible, it's their own made up God. And when they do that, what they are doing is they are denying the Christ of the Bible. They're denying the Jesus of the Bible. They're denying the sovereignty of the Lord. They're, they're denying the Lordship of Christ. These are the same people that are gonna hear Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And Jude tells us at the beginning of the verse that these folks are destined for judgment. But it also does not leave us off the hook. We have to be able to defend it. And that's what the rest of the book is about. 
And these types of teachings were always done under the guise of religion. They use a little bit of the Bible and they use a little bit of what they teach and they kind of mesh it together. They, they don't believe all of the Bible. They believe some of the Bible. They believe the parts that they like and they disregard the parts that they don't like. And this is why Jude is saying, wake up. You need to be able to contend for the faith, which is the... If you look in my Bible, the Bible says Jude contending for the faith. One commentary says every church is one generation away from extinction. Because if we fail to guard the truth and contend for the faith, then when we are gone, the next generation who is not contended for it and not prepared to contend for it will easily slide into what sounds good. If we fail to guard the truth and contend for the truth, then we are missing what we are supposed to be doing as a church. And the word contend here means to, as an intense effort, as in a wrestling match, or to agonize. The Bible refers to itself sometimes, or the faith, as a, as a sport. A devoted athlete who competes in the Greek games, stretching his nerves and muscles to do the very best he can to win. A similar use would be in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes into the games goes into strict training. It's also used in a sense of a continuous struggle. How many know this is never going to end? There's always going to be false teachers. There's always going to be stuff trying to come into the church to deceive, the Bible says, even the very elect. If we're not careful. I mentioned it last week that we, each one of us, need to be firmly grounded in this book. What happens, and I'm not saying it will happen tomorrow, but I think a time is coming when this book will not be allowed to be possessed in this country. It's already like that in China. You can't have a Bible in China. They'll put you in jail for owning a Bible in China. How many people are being martyred because of this book? They would, they would love to have just a few pages to read we had a video a while ago about um, the Chinese church when they got a suitcase full of Bibles. They were just, they were falling all over themselves to get this. They were kissing the Bible. They were so thankful they had a Bible to read. We take it for granted because you find one everywhere. But what happens if they take it from you? Do you know enough of it to contend for the faith? If you're never able to look at this book again, do you know enough? I think of a, we watched the movie uh, Miracle on the Hudson. How many remember that? The, the plane that landed in the Hudson River, Sully, the pilot. They were going, they, if you've seen the movie, they, they, they take these two pilots before the FAA to figure out if they did the right thing or not. And what they did is they had, they showed a, a couple of test pilots using the test machinery to see that they could have landed someplace else and not in the river. And so he says, how many times did they practice for that? And he said, 17. He said, we had no time to practice for that. We had to do what we needed to do at that moment. We had 30 seconds to make a decision. They had 17 attempts to try it and they failed for 16 of them. He says, well, I made a choice. I knew what to do at that moment. I had to make that choice at that moment. No time to practice, no books to read. I had to make a choice. 
Are we able to come to that point? There may not be a time to practice. may not be a time to read up and find out what God's word says. You may need to make a decision right now. What's God asking me to do right now? What is sin right now? What, what should I do right now? Not every decision is going to be like that. But you're going to be faced with things in your life. What do I have to do right this second? I can't, I can't read God's book. I, what does God want me to do? What's the truth? It's always going to be a struggle. The enemy has power in this world. How many know that? The Bible says God has given him power. He's the prince of the power of the air. So he has authority and power here. And so he will always continue to try to drag you away from God's truth. And it's a never-ending struggle. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's his mission. It's his entire goal. Jesus says, I've come that they have may have life and have it to the full. You know, as parents, especially of young kids, you're very careful about what your kids watch, what they listen to, who they hang out with, right? Don't let them watch Netflix on, unguarded. You watch them. You monitor what they watch and you only let them watch things that you know are good for them, not bad for them. God says we as individual believers and as a church have to be on the same guard up against what we allow into our eye gate, into our spirit. Especially when it sounds religious. We can, we can detect things in the world easily. We can detect blatant sin. But is it, it's a little bit harder to detect something that sounds good. It sounds religious. They use a couple of Bible verses. It sounds good. But do we know enough to detect truth from error? Someone said, how much poison is okay to drink? If you mix it with Coke, how much poison is okay to drink? And think about this, antifreeze. Antifreeze smells fruity. I think it tastes okay. But antifreeze will kill you if you drink it. Things in the world sound good, sound fruity, they sound, they, they taste, they may taste good. But the Bible says, in the end, is death. We, want, we protect our kids because we love them. God protects his kids because he loves us. And we want to make sure that we are being protected from what the world and the enemy wants to do from within. It means we have our guard up. It means we filter everything we listen to through God's word. Is it true? Does it match scripture? Do they take something out of context? It's easy to prove anything you want to prove with the Bible if you take something out of context. We need to know the word so when these attacks come, we'll recognize them. I'll close with the analogy that you all probably have heard a thousand times. The treasury agents, when they study false currency, counterfeit currency, they don't, they don't study the counterfeit. They study the real 
They, they memorize what their real currency looks like so that the minute they see a fake one, they'll know it because they know the true one so well. Would you stand as we close this morning? <clears throat> close your eyes for a moment if you would. We live in a, in a blessed country. God has continued to pour his blessing out upon us. But we also know the enemy is at work. And we have to be able to guard ourselves from what the enemy wants to do. As things get worse in the world, it's going to be very easy to identify sin in the world. But it's not going to be so easy to define sin when it sounds good, especially in a church. And for that, we need the spirit of discernment. We talked about that with the spiritual gifts. The Bible says not everything that comes from God's people is from God. Test every spirit, the Bible says. Not every spirit is from God. So that means we test what we're being taught. It means we test what we're listening to. We test what we hear on the radio, what we hear on TV, what we hear on the internet. We test it to make sure it's true. Christians are great at standing against the world. We're not so great at standing against what happens inside our own house. If you're here this morning, you've never been in this type of a church or maybe you've been here all your life. But you really haven't made a commitment to Christ. You, you've, you have this made up Jesus in your head like we talked about. You had this made up God in your head who your God is exactly like you want him to be. But you've not really accepted the Christ of the Bible. The Bible says that God loves you, has a plan for your life, but he also has judgment coming on sin that's not confessed. As Christians, we're not fearful of judgment because Christ already paid that for us. But if you haven't accepted Christ's forgiveness, then you should be fearful of the judgment that is to come. Jesus never scared anybody into the kingdom. All we did was point out truth. He said, this is what's going to happen. He did it in order to draw people to himself so that people would say, yes, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I am destined for that judgment. But thank you. Thank you that you took the punishment that I should take. And because of that, now I'm going to serve you as much as I can, the best I can. And if you're, you're here, you've never done that. You've never really committed your life to Christ. You've never asked for that forgiveness of your sin. And the Bible says today is a day of salvation. Today is a day you make the choice. Not tomorrow, not next week. Today. If that's you and you want to commit your life to Christ, I want you to raise your hand right now. I'm going to assume that all of us here are committed followers of Christ. So Father, we thank you 
as we live in this blessed country, where we have the freedom to worship, we have the freedom to read your word, we have the freedoms that you give us to this great country. Lord, we do pray against what's happening now in this country when they're trying to take you away from everything, but your word tells us that's going to happen. But we pray against that and we pray that God, you would continue to give us grace and mercy in these times. And we pray that these these times would be conducive to having a revival in the land. When things get hard and things get really difficult and tense, the Holy Spirit does his best work in drawing people in. So Lord, I pray that you would spark a revival in me, in this church, in this community, that we would see the power of God poured out in these last days before you do come back for your church. I pray that you would revive us. All those folks we are praying for on our lists, I pray that God, you would get into their life, remove the blindness from their eyes. Before you come back, I pray that you would save them in the name of Jesus. As we learn from Jude, it may not happen in our lifetime, but we believe it's gonna happen. So Father, I pray your salvation, your Holy Spirit draw upon them, that you would save them for the glory of God, for the defeat of Satan, steal them from his kingdom and bring them into the kingdom of light for the glory of God. Father, I pray your blessings upon each of us as we leave today. As we celebrate with our friends and our family, I pray that our first, first focus would be upon you. Lord, it's, we did not deserve to be born here. You, by your grace, allowed us to be here. Lord, we love this country, but we love you more. And we serve you. Regardless of what happens in the country, we still serve you. But while we have this great nation, we thank you for it. We celebrate it. And we acknowledge that, God, you are the giver of all good gifts. So, Lord, I pray your blessings upon us as we leave this morning. Let the Holy Spirit fill us and anoint us. Set us up with divine appointments, Lord. Open up our mouths, allow us to speak, give us words to say, and allow us to win many folks to Christ. Father, we pray for VBS as it starts next week. I pray your anointing upon all those who are leading it, that everything we do here, Lord, would work, that you would fill this sanctuary with children and their parents. Allow this to be a, a transforming time in their lives where they are saved, their families are saved, that God, you do a tremendous work, ultimately bringing people into the kingdom of God. Father, help us, anoint us to do your work. Help us to carry it out to the best of our ability. We need your anointing for that, Lord. Pray for everyone's health. Let no one be sick. Give us great weather. Let everything be conducive to you winning souls for the kingdom of God. Father, we commit that day, we commit our lives to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day today and tomorrow if you're going to celebrate. But always remember the Lord.